May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Ruth is not really about Ruth. I mean, she does play a lead in the narrative. She is an important person. She's a heroine even. But it's really not her story. It could be called the book of Naomi. Naomi is the, the lead character. And in fact, it's Naomi's problem that really gets the story going. It's really the problem of Naomi that kind of moves the story along, if you will. It's... It's Naomi's problem that kind of drives the plot. Have you ever noticed how every book you've ever read, every novel, every play you've ever went to see, every, every film you've ever taken in, um, it, it always centers around a problem. There's, there's always a problem that has to be solved. I mean, if the Capulets and the Montagues aren't warring with one another, it wouldn't matter if Juliet loved Romeo, would it? I mean, it would be all good fun. Yeah, isn't that lovely? Two young kids that love each other. But there's a problem. You know, they're not supposed to be in love. They're not supposed to like one another. If there's no famine in the land, Hansel and Gretel would not have been left in the forest by their wicked stepmother. They would have been at home scrubbing the floors like they're supposed to, right? I mean, they wouldn't have been taken out and left in the forest. And if the big bad wolf wasn't so hungry... He wouldn't have shoved Granny into the closet so that he could eat Little Red Riding Hood, right? Which always makes me wonder why the the Big Bad Wolf didn't just eat Granny. I mean, why did he wait on Little Red Riding Hood? But I digress. Um, There's always a problem. There's always... You're going to be thinking about that all day, aren't you? Hmm. What's the problem? There's always this kind of... this, This rub, this conflict, this dilemma that needs to be solved. I mean, that's... That's what narrative is. That's what story is. If you don't have a dilemma, if you don't have a problem, you don't have a story. A story is an itch that sort of needs to be scratched, right? I mean, this is, this is how we deal with them, with storytelling. And, and, the, and the story of the book of Ruth is the story of poor, woeful Naomi. This woman whose life just sort of fell apart. Let me back up and, and remind you of the story. She's married to a guy. His name is Elimelech. God is my king. And that's a great name, right? Elimelech. I, I like to call him Eli. You know, I think his friends probably did, right? And so and Naomi is married to this guy, Eli. They, they seem to have a pretty good life together. Um, they have two children. But unfortunately for Eli and Naomi, the children aren't very well. Their, their names are sickly and, um, and, and uh, annihilated. So, you know, they don't really have these... I kind of think of these as two boys who weren't very healthy. They weren't well as children. But they loved them. They had a good family. And so the four of them, Eli and Naomi and and their two boys, uh, they they had a life together as farming families, like most most, most families in the ancient Near Eastern world were. But then a really bad summer came along. A summer of drought. And... All of a sudden, everybody's you know crops were wiped out. It was it was months and months and months of no rain, not, not unlike the one we just came through ourselves, right? And if you're in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was that was a really really difficult thing. And and so you know here they are wiped out of crops. And I, and I think I just imagine with me, I think that Elimelech and Naomi and their family, I think they got through the first year. I think they had some supply, and they sold it, maybe at a good price. And I can even imagine Elimelech saying to himself, Wow, you know, maybe this is going to be a good thing after all. Maybe it's a, 
a sort of blessing in disguise until the next year came and another drought. And here he is, wiped out. Imagine this young man with a wife and two sickly sons. Ancient Near Eastern world, there's no real way of, of, of changing careers. You couldn't go out. And so I think, I think Elimelech, Eli, and Naomi, I think they were the first ones to put the for sale sign up in the yard. But this is where there's a little catch. You see, in Israel, in the ancient Near Eastern world, even maybe to this day, in Israel you couldn't just buy and sell land. Land was a gift given by God. And so it, it was given to a family as a gift from God, and it remained in that family's name, well, for, uh, forever. You know, this was a perpetual gift. Perhaps you've heard there are people who live in Israel today who still think that is a perpetual gift, right? And so there's a lot of tension going on in Israel over this very thing, even to this day. But Elimelech sells his property. Property that's going to have to be sold back to his family, but we'll hold on to that for a minute. And he moves south to this land called Moab. There's work there, there there's good harvest, the weather's in good shape. And he moves down there with his family, raises his two young sons who grow up, marry local girls, things seem to be going okay, and then tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. In the ancient Near Eastern world, there was no such thing as life insurance. There was no social security. There was no no government program. There There was no private program. The only thing that a person could do, like Naomi, in her situation, if her husband was to die is to move in with family, and fortunately for her, she has two sons. So she moves in with one of her sons. But guess what happens? Her son dies. And so Naomi and her daughter-in-law, who's also a widow, now move in with the other son. And guess what happens? Her other son dies. And now, not one widow, but three. And three widows move into this home together and and they don't know what to do. They have no way of... They're not allowed to go out and get a job. This world doesn't provide for them to have a job. There's no no insurance. There's no no safety net for them. They're completely on their own in the world. And see, Naomi figures that she'll do the only thing she can do. Move back to Israel. She packs her bags... Daughter-in-laws pack their bags. They're right behind her walking out the door. And Naomi turns around. And she does a very selfless thing. She says to these young women, You can't go with me. Go home. Neither of them have children apparently. They can go home. They can start all over. They're young enough to be married still. So go home. Start a new life. Naomi says, I'll face the world alone. And apparently there is a real close kinship between these women because they all weep bitterly. They say that Ruth and Orpah, they hold on to Naomi. No, no, we don't want to do that. But Orpah decides, you're probably right. And so she leaves. But not Ruth. Ruth says to Naomi, I'm not going to leave you. And the problem that we have to deal with in chapter 1 isn't just... Isn't just Ruth or Naomi's problem, this problem of being a widow in an ancient world. We also have to deal with this question why in the world would Ruth stay with her? Why does she stay with her? 
It's interesting to find this story. If you, if you read any of the literature written about this story, this is pretty fascinating. To have such a complex story, such a complex narrative written so long ago is basically unheard of in the ancient world. And, and, and people look at this, and, and in the ancient Talmud, for instance, there's this uh, commentary about it, and it says that Elimelech was cursed because he moved out of the land of Judah. You know, that's what happened. That's why this problem happened, because he shouldn't have left Israel. But that's not said anywhere in the text. Nowhere in the text does, does it say that, that God cursed this family because they moved. And in fact, there's, um, there's a sense in which God is behind everything that's going on, but behind it, not in front of it. Notice that the people talk about God. Did you, hear, did you catch that? They talked about God, but there's no sense of somebody speaking for God. God isn't entering into the narrative. There are no angels. There are no prophets. Naomi thinks that she's cursed. She says, it's harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord is against me. But that's her interpretation of it. It's not what the writer seems to say. God is distant. He's removed. He's quiet. In the middle of tragedy, they're looking for some answer from God, and God isn't saying a thing. He's quiet in the middle of this. They make conclusions, but they're not God's king. And even Ruth. Ruth says, no, I'm not going to leave you. But did you notice that she doesn't speak with theological language? She doesn't say, Naomi, I feel like the Lord has called me to stay with you. She doesn't say that, does she? She doesn't give a religious defense for why she's doing what she's doing. And you, you know, maybe, maybe she has one, but she doesn't give one. So why does she do it? Does she do it because of religion? Does she do it because of faith? Does she say that God told her to do so? No, she doesn't. She chooses to follow her mother-in-law. Now listen to me. When she makes this decision, she knows that she's going to follow her mother-in-law up to Israel where Israelite men will not marry a Moabite woman. She is going to give up her life. She's going to embrace her mother-in-law's life, a life of destitution and poverty and loneliness and isolation. She's going to do this for one reason. Because she loves her. She loves Naomi. They're friends. And she's not going to turn her back on her. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't she say, um, you know, where you go, I will go, and your people will be my people, and your God, my God? Yes, she does. But this is a concession. Ruth is saying, I give up everything. I'll take on whatever comes my way. I'll, I'll be willing to do whatever you say. I'll go with you if it means eating macaroni and cheese. That's what she's saying. I hate macaroni and cheese. I don't know about you. It's not my favorite. A lifetime of growing up on macaroni. I digress. I'll take whatever you get my way. Whatever you say, that's what I'll do. I'm not going to leave you to face this world alone. That's what friendship is, isn't it? Friendship is saying, I'm willing to suffer with you. I'll step into this with you. I'm not going to leave you even though it's difficult. Even though it means that I have to sacrifice, I'm not going to do it. Ruth did what was right because it was the only thing she could do. It, was, it wasn't that she had this religious impulse. It wasn't that she was uh, you know, following some religious law. 
She did what she did out of love that came from her heart. Genuine love. I don't want you to think that she's irreligious. I don't think that. Nor do I want you to think that it doesn't matter what, what God thinks about our lives. Of course it matters. But that's not what motivated Ruth to act. And I think in, in the church, in Christianity, sometimes I think we're in the danger of thinking that the only things that really are holy in life are like Sunday mornings, you know? That this is the only holy thing we do. No! Friendship is a sacred thing. It is a holy thing. Caring for one another, loving someone else more than you love yourself, is a genuinely godly thing to do. We can do lots of religious things. Come to church, sing hymns, those are great. We can laugh at how dumb the devil is. That's great. Isn't that wonderful? I thought that was funny. We can, we can gather, we can do all kinds of, of religious things, and those are all good. But never underestimate the holiness of being a friend to someone. I'm not saying that we should love people more than God. For heaven's sakes, no. We should love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. But we should also love our neighbors as ourselves. That is a holy and good, it's a sacred thing. And I think what Ruth is showing us is that she loves Naomi from her heart. And that is pleasing to God. This week we celebrated All Saints Day. Okay? The evening before, a lot of kids dressed up in costumes and went out and extorted candy from people. Okay? But the, 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 the day, the November 1st day, was about, was about celebrating the saints, the church. And saints are not just people who love God. Yes, of course they love God. A saint isn't just someone who loves God. A saint is someone who is a friend to the world. I think, I think what we see here is a very subtle and a very sure way of saying when we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we do good. And when we love other people, well, we're someone who is after God's own heart. That is what holiness is as well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.